coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. Just make sure the place where you're sleeping is as electrically mm. quiet as possible. So get your gear out of your bedroom. It should be like a dark sleep cave. There should not be light in there. You ideally, you shouldn't have your phone in there. If your phone's in there, it should be you know, at least 12, 15 feet away from you. Mm. Ideally, in airplane mode. But if somebody's got to reach you, you know, keep it as far away as possible from you. Um, you know, I turn off my Wi-Fi router at night. I have it set up that it just automatically shuts off. You know, before I had that feature, you know, I just had it plugged into a wall that had a red lamp. And if the red lamp was on, I knew that the Wi-Fi router was on and at night I just flipped it off. Uh, but now my one automatically goes off. So just make sure that your bedroom is electrically silent so your body can fully recover. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Dr. Michael Twyman. He's a board-certified cardiologist who focuses on prevention and early detection of heart disease. He utilizes the best of conventional and functional medicine to get to the root cause of the patient's cardiovascular issues. We discussed his four pillars of optimal health, applications of red light therapy, along with ways to prevent heart disease, how to boost nitric oxide naturally, importance of grounding, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Twyman. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Dr. Michael Twyman on. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for coming on. And uh, Michael, you are a board-certified cardiologist. And I, I was reading you have, you've had your private practice since 2012. Is that right? Uh, I've been out of practice since 2012 and started my own uh, solo practice back in 2019. Got it. Not too many people are opening up their own private practices anymore, right? No, I'm I'm definitely a unicorn in that aspect. What what got you into learning about the heart and just you know going down the road of cardiology? And I know now you're getting it, you're into biohacking and things like that. What sort of led you down that road? So I pretty much knew I wanted to be a physician since I was in the fourth grade. I just didn't know which kind. And then medical school, they expose you to different specialties and you kind of figure out like what you might like. And then you do some more rotations and really dialed into cardiology, you know, pretty, uh, laid into my kind of third year of medical school. Um, just fascinated by how the heart works. Um, and just, you know, the day to day was never boring. I mean, you had emergencies, you had, you know, procedures to do, you had imaging to look at, you know, we had yeah. office visits. So it was all fascinating to me. And, you know, eventually I kind of got more interested in the prevention side of things. So a couple of years ago, I decided to focus more on that. Okay. So are you doing like less surgeries now and more just on the preventative side? Yeah. I stepped away from the hospital life, uh, and back in 2019. So I've not sat back since that time. So no, uh, no invasive procedure, just all, uh, you know, consultations and, uh, um, some non-invasive testing we do in the office. Yeah. And, and that's gotta be unique in it's an own, in, in its own sense. And because, um, to go from that, then go on to the preventative side of things where you, was this sort of, a um, you know, you're putting a lot on the line there. Was that a nervous sort of, um, adventure that you, that um, you started? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. You know, I had some, some, uh, business background when I was in the, the military, I got my, uh, MBA because, you know, they decided to make me, uh, in charge of the whole department when I was like 28 years old and figured mm. like, maybe I should learn some, uh, business skills. So had some entrepreneurial bent in me, um, and then eventually figured out enough, uh, um, 
kind of coaching from some uh, you know, smarter business coaches than myself who kind of said, okay, this is the way to kind of go out there and launch it on your own. So, you know, and, uh, you know, haven't looked back since that time. And what, what did you learn from just doing surgeries and, and being, you know, being in the hospital to your practice now that can, that helps a lot of the patients? Sure. I mean, it's night and day what I do now, but, um, but I think it is very useful because, you know, I could see you know, the worst cases, you know, I've unfortunately had many patients, you know, pass away in front of me mm. or suffer major heart attacks that we had to kind of rescue from the brink of death. Um, so I know how bad it can get. And then you can come reverse engineer and say like, well, if we had you 10 years before this, you'd never be here on our cath lab table. Or you wouldn't be here in the ICU, you know, wishing uh, you had met me 10 years earlier. And what are some, uh, you know, high level things that people can do just as far as preventative? So they're not necessarily, you know, going down that path that you mentioned. Yeah. I'm a frequently joke that, you know, you don't want to meet your cardiologist on the way to the cath lab. I mean, mm. you know, yes, I'm a little bit of an anomaly. You know, if you have a very good primary care doctor, they can you know focus on some of these same things. You don't absolutely need a, a preventive cardiologist, but it's more complicated than just, you know, do you have quote, bad cholesterol, which is a term I really dislike using because there's no such thing as bad cholesterol. Right. And, you know, if you get to a cardiologist and you have symptoms, well, you're down the pathway of they're going to do a stress test on you. If it's abnormal, you're going for an angiogram, plus minus you're going to potentially get a cardiac stent or, you know, if it's worst case scenario, they're going to send you for bypass surgery. So you don't want to wait until you're having symptoms. You want to look way before that. And there's something I always focus on in my practice is looking at endothelial health. Endothelium is the inner lining of your arteries. It's one cell thick. If you're able to take out all your endothelium, it'd be the surface area of six tennis courts. So it's one of your largest organs that you don't even know about. But from a cardiovascular standpoint, it's the first thing that gets damaged before the plaque starts building up. And this can happen in your teens and twenties. So you have a decent amount of time to intervene before you're going to have a problem. And what type of markers or tests could people run to sort of get on the preventative thing side of things? So I usually kind of lump it into three buckets. One is this endothelial health. Second is inflammation, oxidation, and the third is the lipoproteins. So the endothelial ones, you know, there's not um, a lot of testing that you can do at home per se, but the two that you potentially could do is just your blood pressure. If you have normal blood pressure, which generally should be less than 120 millimeters over 80 millimeters of mercury, then you likely have healthy endothelial function. But if you're starting to have blood pressures in the 140s, 150s systolic as a younger guy, that's an early warning sign that something's going on with the endothelium and the endothelial glycocalyx, which is the protective coating to the endothelium. Mm. That thing you do at home, there are different companies that make these little test strips. So for the people watching videos, mm. um, looks kind of like litmus paper. Um, you know, you put the saliva on the strip. If it's white, you have low levels of nitric oxide, likely. If it's bright red, you likely have higher levels of nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is the gas that the endothelium releases. That helps the artery relax, so that keeps blood flow normal. But nitric oxide basically also acts like a non-stick surface. When there's high enough levels, the lipoproteins, which are ferrying your cholesterol through the system, they don't tend to stick to the arteries, and you don't start that cascade where plaque will start building up if you have healthy nitric oxide levels. Yeah, you hear nitric oxide a lot of times with like bodybuilding and um, even like you know erectile dysfunction and things like that. What type of things could people do to help you know? get that blood flowing and, and create, you know, higher NO. Sure. So from the non-supplement, non-pharmacological, you know, realm, you know, the best one is exercise as sure. you, you know, increase blood flow to your muscles. The blood is going to transduce the endothelial glycocalyx in English. The blood's rushing down into your limb. It tickles the endothelium. 
that tells the artery, hey, blood flow's coming, release nitric oxide so we can accept this big volume of blood coming down to this muscle. So that is one of the best ways to boost nitric oxide levels is just, you know, routine exercise. Second one, it's UVA sunlight. Today, you know, it's mm. snowing here where I'm at in St. Louis, but even today there's UVA you know, waves that make it through the atmosphere. So when UVA wavelengths hit your skin, it will liberate nitric oxide from your blood vessels on the surface. So this is one of the reasons why your skin starts turning pink initially is because nitric oxide is getting released and you're vasodilating the arteries. So that's a free one is sunlight on your skin. And then from a dietary standpoint, it's the dietary nitrates. Those are mostly commonly found in dark leafy green vegetables. Also beets will have nitrates as well. And, uh, yeah, you mentioned sunlight. I know you've gotten just exploring your webpage. You've gotten into, uh, photo biomodulations. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Mouthful. Yeah. yeah. It's a mouthful. I had to practice that one. What type of applications and maybe explain people a little bit about red light and how that can apply to this. Sure. So photobiomodulation, you know, using light therapy to change your biology. So it was initially discovered in the 1960s. Accidentally, they were trying to study cancer in uh, rats. And when they actually uh, were using these red ruby lasers on these rats, they were growing thicker coats of fur. Um, mm. And they, that was the first you know, use case was you know, hair regrowth. Um, but now there's you know, hundreds of use cases for uh, light therapy, red light therapy specifically. Um, and you know, from a you know, most use case, it's mostly musculoskeletal. So you know, athletes will use this before they exercise. They precondition their muscles with it. It puts energy into your mitochondria, the organelles in your cells that make ATP. And if you have more energy, you're able to go longer. It doesn't necessarily make you stronger, but you generally have more endurance. And then the other best use case for it is, you know, post-exercise. Um, it just helps decrease inflammation, decreases pain. Um, and so people have decreased delayed onset muscle soreness. So they recover faster. They're able to go back and hit it hard again sooner. So a lot of the professional uh, sports teams and Olympians are using these type of devices. Is this something you use on a daily or weekly basis? Uh, I personally use it daily. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a you know, biohacker nerd. So I have a lot of these devices to my, uh, uh, access. So I have, you know, portable ones. I have, you know, half size ones. I have an eight foot tall one in my office, you know, researching, you know, potentially getting a, a you know, bed type of device, mm. but you don't need all of these things. You can get by with, you know, a like two, $300 panel. And, you know, that works for most people, you know, so you just kind of spot weld, whatever you want to be treating with those type of panels. And other than, I don't even want to say it again, other than red light therapy, uh, what else do you use? Um, uh, I, I actually, I'm, I'm, I've put a infrared sauna in my basement. Uh, is this, do you use any hot or cold therapy for yourself? Correct. Yes. Um, the, the sauna use is, uh, you know, even in conventional cardiology, they, they understand the benefits of sauna therapy, um, has a much bigger culture in Japan and Finland, obviously, sure. but, um, the data is pretty strong, um, especially on the, on the Finn side, you know, there's a study that came out a couple of weeks ago that showed that men who were using saunas three to four times a week for at least 20 minutes of kind of like a rolling sweat, they had upwards of 40% less heart attacks than people who did not use saunas. Mm -hmm. And there's multiple reasons why this is likely beneficial. The main ones are that it's going to help with, you know, basically it acts as like exercise to the right. body. You're increasing your heart rate. It'll help your body produce nitric oxide. You know, you're going to have, you know, detoxification happening. So you're going to sweat out heavy metals and plastics you've been exposed to. It's going to activate heat shock proteins. Those proteins go then and fix other proteins that have been damaged. 
And then kind of more the, you know, the quantum biology nerds, you know, it's going to improve the exclusion zone water that surrounds your cells, you know, the structured water. So the infrared light expands the exclusion zone and that exclusion zone water is another repository for energy. So it's not just about ATP, it's the water in your body storing it as energy. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, sauna, great benefits. Um, do you do any cold therapy? Anything with Correct. cold? So yeah, I didn't get into that part. Uh, yeah. In two weeks, I'm actually going to Finland. Oh my God. Nights, and, uh, yeah, there's, uh, access to go jump in the, uh, the Arctic ocean. So I'm going to definitely uh, partake in that. Um, so yeah, cold That's therapy cool. is beneficial. Even in conventional cardiology, we used it, uh, targeted temperature management is what it was called. So if a patient, much like that Buffalo Bills player who had his uh, sudden cardiac death event on the field, I'm not 100% sure they did this to him, but it's likely they did, is you usually will cool patients down for the first 24 hours after they have a sudden cardiac death. That mm. slows the metabolism down. It decreases inflammation. And there's been data that it helps improve neurologic function. So anybody who had an out of a hospital cardiac arrest, um, we would either do these cooling blankets or these intravenous uh, tubes that would put cool saline through their uh, system and cool them down for over a day or two, and then you'd warm them back up, and they usually did better. So there's definitely benefit in you know the conventional world, but kind of the biohacker way to do it, you know, it's boosting dopamine, you know, it's you know, mental toughness, you know, decreases inflammation, and again for the kind of the quantum nerds, it helps the mitochondria by decreasing the respiratory proteins. Um, basically shrinks them closer together so that you can pass electrons through them faster. So the faster you pass electrons through your mitochondria's respiratory chain, the quicker you make energy. Yeah. I've also put a cold plunge in my, although living in Chicago and you're in, you know, you're in Missouri, so you're got cold weather as well. Uh, you could definitely just go outside right now and lay in the snow. Correct. Yeah. You don't need one of these fancy plunges. Right. Um, you know, you can just do cold water you know, exposure in your shower, bathtub. Shower is actually pretty hard because of the air. You know, you have uneven uh, mm. distribution of the, the temperature. Um, but, you know, for somebody who's just starting out, yeah, just go outside with less clothing than you would normally put on. And then, you know, when you start getting cool, you head back inside and then just build up your tolerance then. Now, I, it sounds like you've gotten really into the biohacking side. What sort of led down that road? Is this something that you apply in your practice now for your I patients? Yeah, and yeah. For those watching the video, we're in the... The, the hallmark biohacker, you know, blue blocking glasses. Um, so, you know, back in 2017, I was taking a long trip over to Asia. You know, one of my hobbies is kind of international travel. Mm. And that was like me a long trip. It was a 14 hour flight from uh, St. Louis to over to Thailand. Um, and we we're actually going to do another hop over, uh, you know, the day after that to Bhutan, which uh, the, the world's happiest people uh, reside in Bhutan. And oh. most people may not know exactly where Bhutan is located, but it's sandwiched between China and India. Um, but I knew the jet lag was going to be pretty uh, significant, you know, flying that far. So I knew a little bit about melatonin and some other things, but, you know, to start researching, you know, well, how can you help mitigate jet lag and came upon some articles talking about these blue blocking glasses. And I didn't really read the articles too much. I just bought them warm on the plane. And I always looked insane on the plane. I had the hoodie on to block all the light. You know, I, I literally looked like the Unabomber sitting on the plane <laughs> and, uh, you know, they didn't kick me off somehow. And then yeah. when I go over to Thailand, um, you know, the jet lag was present. But in my estimation, it's maybe about a third as bad as it should have been. And so then I had a great trip. And then when I got back to the States, I just really went deep down the rabbit holes. Okay, how did that actually work? And then stumbled upon circadian biology. And then, you know, one thing led to another and, you know, got into red light therapy and just keep stacking all the uh, the biohacks that I learned. Now, did you say you ended up going to Bhutan? We did. Yeah, it was excellent. 
what did you learn? Like you said, the happiest place on what is the happiest place yeah, on earth? Happiest people on earth. Uh, yeah. Now, sometimes it goes back and forth. I think the Finns are also pretty happy, but um, partly I think it's just that there's still a strong, you know, historical culture that they had there. Um, they were, I think, the last country on earth to actually get television. I don't think they had television until like the mid 80s or maybe mm -hmm. in the 90s. Um, so it's just, you know, stepping back in time, you know, it's a, another yeah. worldly type of experience. And, you know, you would treat it like family when you got there. Um, yeah, I'm not Buddhist, but it was a very peaceful place to be. Um, so if you ever have access to, you know, going to Bhutan, it's definitely worth the, the haul over there. Yeah, I always thought New Yorkers were the happiest people in the world. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> I've heard you talk about grounding. And uh, yeah, look, maybe explain to the listeners a little bit about grounding. This is something I probably don't do enough. I mean, granted now, um, it's not that great to just walk outside, but I guess you could just ground by putting your hands on a tree, <laughs> Correct. right? So maybe yeah. explain to people about grounding and how they can use that. Sure. So before, you know, we had uh, shoes with rubber soles, we were always pretty much connected to the earth. Um, every other animal other than us is generally connected to the earth and sleeps on the earth or sleeps in the tree connected to the earth. Um, so the earth is negatively charged. The earth has more electrons than you do. So when you're standing on the earth with, you know, bare hands, bare feet, the flow of electrons goes from higher source to lower source. So they flow into you. So electrons, they help, you know, lower inflammation. They help get into your mitochondria so you can make energy out of those electrons. It will help thin your blood. It's called your zeta potential. So you want your blood to be like red wine, not so much like ketchup. When mm -hmm. you're you know, not connected to the earth, your blood tends to get stickier. So this helps thin the blood naturally. You know, it's anti-inflammatory. Um, it helps balance your autonomic nervous system. So you have a fight or flight response, your sympathetic branch. You have your autonomic side, your parasympathetic, your relaxation response. So when you're standing on the earth barefoot, you're activating that parasympathetic side. So many people, if they've had the experience, you know, if you go to the beach and, you know, you got your feet in the sand, you may notice you're not really that hungry. You know, you probably eat less food those days because you're literally getting energy from the earth. You don't have to then eat the energy from food mm. sources then. That's another way of saying it. I've, um, I'm curious, what do you do to ground? Do, do you believe much in these grounding mats or do you think that's a little bit? You got to be a little bit careful with them, depending yeah. on what you're putting them into. Because if you don't know if your own home is grounded, then you might cause some issues actually attracting non-native EMF to you. But if you know you have a grounding mat and it has a you know copper wire and it's out your window into the ground, I'm not opposed to that. I don't personally do that at this point. You know, my own experience is I was using a grounding mat a couple of nights trying to sleep and had really, really weird dreams personally. And I mm. don't usually have weird dreams. So I was like, I'm gonna stop using this. Um, but when I'm outside, you know, I barefoot as much as I can be, or I have different shoes that have uh, copper plugs or other uh, transducing materials or just go old school. You can wear leather sold shoes and you're still conducting through them then. Okay. And, uh, you know, just getting back to uh, the preventative side of things, what kind of, I, I know you talk about a little bit on your YouTube channel, like you talk about four pillars of optimal health. Perhaps maybe we'll touch on those. Those are great things that come up a lot on my podcast. Um, I know you mentioned stress management, HRV, perhaps maybe talk about HRV a little bit and stress management and how that can be, you know, a preventative, you know, way to, to, uh, avoid, uh, having issues down the road. 
Sure. And thank you for bringing it up. Yeah. I usually kind of talk about with my patients that there's four pillars of optimal health. And if you ignore one of them, the stool sometimes is going to fall over. So everybody tends to, you know, initially gravitate towards nutrition and exercise. And I don't people, you know, they're not that they're not important, but there may be number five and six down on the list, important things to talk about. So, you know, one pillar is stress management. The second other one is uh, sleep. So the stress side of things, you know, Everybody has stress. Everybody has physical stress when they exercise. Everybody has mental stress. But how well do you bounce back from it is really the question. You know, I, I'm, uh, you know, in a high-rise building, there's a highway behind me, and I usually use analogies. You know, if you get cut off in traffic on this highway, you know, everybody kind of gets pissed off initially. But are you still pissed off four hours later, still talking about it? Okay, right. that's a problem. So how fast can you basically pull down that sympathetic tone and ramp up the parasympathetic tone? And one of the things you can do to kind of measure that is your heart rate variability. So heart rate variability is you know, the nerdy way to say is the R to R uh, interval on an EKG. It's measured in milliseconds. So it's the distance between consecutive heartbeats. And it should change as that autonomic nervous system is being stimulated. So it's kind of like your early warning sign. The more variable your heart rate variability, the better you're able to handle that stressor. So there's different devices that can measure the heart rate variability. You know, I've tried multiple of them. The one thing is that they tend to rhyme, but the numbers generally are not the exact same. I've tried being the, the oh. ball hacker and wearing two or three monitors at the same time, and the numbers are different. They tend to rhyme. So just pick whatever device you're going to use and look for your own baseline heart rate availability. And if it starts dropping 10, 20% from your baseline, then you got to look into it. You know, are you overtraining? Are you getting sick? You know, what else is going on that's kind of breaking your heart rate variability? Um, and on that note, is there, because uh, I've tried the whoop um, I've never done like ordering. Are, is there a certain like wearable that you prefer that you think you'd recommend or? It really depends on what the, the use case is for the person. You know, yeah. I, I had the Gen 1 Oura ring that looked like a mood ring. It was ginormous. I had the Gen 2. Um, and then I've tried Whoop for a while. I'm currently using a, um, a bio strap, also a cardio mood from Switzerland. Um, kind of like the bio strap because it also has your pulse socks. It does some measures of arterial elasticity, which is kind of in my world, early warning signs are the arteries starting to get stiff, which can mean you have low nitric oxide levels. So I kind of like this bio strap right now. Um, but the things that are important to me is that any device that you have on you personally, I think you should leave it in Bluetooth off mode or airplane mode, mm -hmm. because you don't necessarily want your mitochondria that are in your body being pinged by Bluetooth repeatedly throughout the day, especially when you're sleeping, you want your body to be able to recover. So I keep my stuff in airplane mode. It's recording locally. And then I download the information the next day. Got it. Yeah. I've tried the wearables. I mean, I had the whoop, I think it was good for, you know, a couple of weeks or a month. And then I was like, okay, you know, like, I, I feel like I have a pretty good feel for how my sleep was, you know, how I, you know, if I need, if I've recovered, recovered enough, and you talk about like stress management, I usually can tell if I need to like go to yoga <laughs> yeah. or do something, you know, you can sort of tell like just by little things, if little things might just slightly irritate you normally, and they normally don't, you're like, I always think to myself, I'm like, you know, I could probably either do something, maybe jump in the cold or, or do like a, you know, a, uh, an hour yoga class or something. Right. Yeah. I might think they're useful, but yeah, you know, I don't want people to get like, you know, super paranoid that the results are not perfect every morning. You know, there's right. definitely been studies where they've you know, taken people and blinded them to their own results and they had actually slept well. They told them, Hey, your sleep is horrible. And they went out and performed horribly at basketball practice. And the converse, there's people who slept bad and they said, you did great. And they did great at basketball practice. So, right. you know, I tend to use the game of like, wear the device, 
and guess what the results are going to be. Then look at your data and like, yeah, that correlates. Mm. You kind of then eventually, like you said, know when you're kind of, hey, I didn't sleep as well as possible or, hey, maybe I'm getting sick and you know what the data is going to show. Yeah, I agree with that. And what about um, thoughts on like 5G and are, do, do you do anything to... Um, gosh, we're surrounded by computers and I, I, I have a few things that I've used and, and, you know, I guess it's tough to tell if, if they're working or not, but you got to sort of trust the process, I guess, and trust the manufacturer. What, uh, are there any type of, I think the one I've had, I've added to my house a little bit, it's called Airs Tech. If you've heard of that company, that brand. Okay. Is there any, anything around that that you use? Um, I mean, the, the inverse square law is the most common thing I use. Uh, that's the physics term is just the further away you're from the, the radiation source, the, the the less radiation you receive. That's what I use all the time. When I was in the cath lab, we stood away from the uh, mm-hmm. II, the ionizing uh, you know, camera that was taking the pictures while we're doing our angiograms. Um, but, you know, your, your question about 5G, it's complicated because there's no consumer facing meters that you can use to say, what is your exposure? If you're in a big city, you're being exposed. And unless you're living in a lead-lined room, you know, the 5G is getting through your walls and any of your, you know, traditional Faraday-type cages. So the major issue with non-native EMF is that it opens up the, the voltage-gated calcium channels in your cells. And calcium rushes in, that causes inflammation, causes reactive oxygen species, less energy is made, you know, it's a cell danger response. So, you know, sicker people who have a lot of inflammation, a lot of oxidative stress, they probably need to be more careful with their exposure. If you're, you know, generally a healthy young guy, you know, great energy levels, great you know, sex drive, great sleep, it's probably not affecting you as much at that point. Okay, I do have like my phone right here. It, there's something called Safe Sleeve. It's a nice mm-hmm. company. They make a bunch of different, um, you know, covers. I guess that 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 you know will block the the five G from the phones. So possibly, possibly, but possibly. You know, yeah, or, I mean, I mostly, yeah, with the phone, the, the trick is, you know, talking to it when it's in like speaker mode mm-hmm. um, or using an air gapped uh, um, headset so that, you know, it looks kind of like a stethoscope. There's an air tube and then there's like the speakers below it. Um, and then, you know, my office, you know, home, everything's Ethernet. So try to hardwire everything. Um, so, you know, you just have to kind of like do the big actors. You know, if you're going to do one place, just make sure the place where you're sleeping is as electrically mm. quiet as possible. So get your gear out of your bedroom. It should be like a dark sleep cave. There should not be light in there. You ideally, you shouldn't have your phone in there. If your phone's in there, it should be you know, at least 12, 15 feet away from you. Mm. Ideally in airplane mode, but if somebody's got to reach you, you know, keep it as far away as possible from you. Um, you know, I turn off my Wi-Fi router at night. I have it set up that it just automatically shuts off. Yeah, before I had that feature, you know, I just had it plugged into a wall that had a red lamp. And if the red lamp was on, I knew that the Wi-Fi router was on and at night I just flipped it off. Uh, but now my one automatically goes off. So just make sure that your bedroom is electrically silent so your body can fully recover. Yeah. And I can't imagine nowadays you see all these people with like their the AirPods in their I mean in their ear the whole day, literally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never I, yeah, I never wear them, but it can't be good. I mean, no, very unlikely right. that it will be good. And, you know, and a lot of the issues are that, you know, you know, because they don't quote heat up, they're not like microwaves where you're going to see immediate cell damage, but it's that low level opening up of that, the voltage gated calcium channels that's causing the problem. And if people, you know, want to go fact check it, go look at the NTP study that was released by the government a couple of years ago. They were using 2G and 3G signals in mice and rats, 
and it definitively caused heart sarcomas in rats. And rats, you know, um, have more complicated uh, um, opsin system than humans do. So if it was causing cancers in rats, it's possible that it's causing it in humans as well. They just haven't done the long-term studies for people. So it's always kind of like the precautionary principle. So if there's more likely to do harm than benefit, you probably want to stay away from it. And that's the NPT. Is that right? NTP. Uh, NTP. Okay. NTP study. Okay. Okay. So we got stress management. We got sleep, which you mentioned already. You know, I like you said, cool, dark space, you know, keep electric devices away, ideally airplane mode. Um, and the other two pillars, let's hit on those. Sure. Which one will you do first? Exercise uh, and nutrition. Yeah. Resistance training. For sure. Yeah. Big part of uh, what I recommend patients now. I mean, yeah. First start with, you know, telling people like, you know, what is your exercise time budget? Because, you know, I'm not somebody who's a professional athlete. I'm not asking people to work out 10 hours a week. You know, you know, it's what time do you have available to work out? You know, traditional medicine recommends at least 150 minutes of moderate activity. That should be doable for the majority of people. For the week. When I was super busy in the hospital, you just had to prioritize it. It's like, I got to the conclusion. It's like, if I don't take care of myself and I break down, I can't take care of these hundreds of patients that, you know, you know, need me. So you just have to budget the time. There's just not another way about it. But, you know, first the pillar is resistance training because I have a good friend, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, you know, she focuses on something called muscle centric medicine and, you know, you age better when you have healthy muscles, your metabolism is mainly driven by how much muscle mass you have. You know, when you're a young guy, you don't put much stock into it. You know, you're able to put on muscle pretty easily when you're in your twenties and thirties, but once you're 40, 50, uh, it's really hard to hold on to it. And it's definitely harder to gain it back if you start losing it. So you have to continually have a battle plan. Like how do I not lose this muscle mass that I have? And that's going to be the resistance training, ideally at least three times a week, doing whatever type of resistance training you feel comfortable doing. Yeah, I'm a big fan for sure. And um, what about, let's talk nutrition. I know you talk about seasonal eating and timing of meals. Sure. You know, nutrition is complicated and there's no perfect diet that everybody should be following. You know, it comes down to, you know, what is that person's goals? Is it weight loss, weight gain? Um, You know, are they already insulin resistant? You know, I always start with mitochondria. Mitochondria are the organelles in your cells that make energy for you. They're what break down the fats that you eat. They are what break down the carbohydrates that you eat. You know, they break them down into electrons. And then those electrons fuel a process in the mitochondria that makes ATP, water, heat, and carbon dioxide. So you're actually eating for the electrons that's in the food. Mm-hmm. So you inherit your mitochondria only from your mom. So the healthier your mom was and the healthier her mom was, those are basically your starting battery packs of mitochondria. You're going to do better. If they are very sick, you basically have engines that don't have good spark plugs, and it doesn't matter almost how well you eat because the engines are broken. You have to focus on tuning up the engines, and that's through the things we're talking about. Exercise, proper sleep, get healthy engines. Then the fuel makes a bigger difference. So I always start with circadian biology. You know, Eating is supposed to be done during daylight hours. That's when your body's primed to digest that information from Mother Nature. So I usually recommend patients eat within the first hour of the sunrise when their local environment is and stop eating at least three hours before they're playing bedtime. After that, the macronutrients, we can kind of play around with. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that can be a little bit difficult, especially if you're in the Midwest, like you are, and it gets dark at like five, but, um, uh, I typically 
tell my clients the same thing is like, you know, giving yourself three, three hours before bed, um, to, you know, finish that last meal. And, uh, it's all know. about circadian biology so that your liver and gut basically shut off for the night and your body starts going into repair mode. So you can do this autophagy, you're repairing the cellular you know, processes that happened during the day. You know, I usually talk about it being like about the day, the dishes are getting dirty at night. You put them in the dishwasher and then in the morning, you got clean dishes. Well, if you don't sleep well, you don't have clean dishes in the morning. Yeah. And do you have like a sleep routine or a morning routine? I'm a big Big routine guy. What type of things do do you like to do to either finish your day or start your day? I don't have as strong of an evening routine other than I'm just really good with my light hygiene. I mean, right. you know, my place is you know, very circadian friendly. It looks like a submarine. I mean, I have all sorts of red lights, red light panels. So like my melanopsin receptors are not getting pinged all night. So I generally fall asleep between nine and nine 30, pretty much naturally. So I usually try to wind down the technology, you know, at least the stimulating ones an hour before bed. Maybe I'll watch, you know, a Netflix show or something like that for about half hour, hour before bed, but I'm not, you know, reading the news or something that's going to kind of like get y'all pissed off and go lay down. Um, but I have a pretty routine routine in the morning. You know, it's not super like, you know, fancy It's you know, I'm up by 5am. I go start the coffee pot, you know, basically heating up, go meditate for 20 minutes, then go make the first cup of coffee read in the morning time right now reading some stoic philosophy read for about you know 20 30 minutes then right now st louis sunrise is about 7 15 in the morning so usually outside walking by six something outside for 45 minutes or more mm. um, and then sunrise get at least 10 15 minutes of sunlight in my eyes in the morning time to set that super cosmic nucleus and then have breakfast um, usually very protein forward breakfast and then i'm in the office by 9 a.m Okay. And yeah, I love the, the starting with the morning walk. I have a couple dogs, so I'm always up and out. Uh, do you have dogs or just go out, out walking on your own? Okay. Go, go out walk with my wife. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and is your wife into all this? She's gotten into a lot more of it. She definitely likes the, the cold morning walks with me. I mean, just, you know, it's a mental kind of boost. So, um, yeah, she's okay with all the red lights on because her sleep improved after we started doing that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, I know you've talked a little bit about caffeine what what are your thoughts around caffeine and and how you can sort of utilize it yeah caffeine's a it's a complicated topic you know i know it's in a lot of you know the bodybuilder stacks and such um but from a cardiovascular standpoint it's not as simple simplistic as this but you really want to know are you a fast or slow metabolizer of the caffeine because mm. if you're a slow metabolizer of the caffeine it's going to stick around in your system longer and it's potentially going to affect your sleep onset but it's also going to tend to raise your blood pressure, increase your heart rate. And people who are slow metabolizers, they have increased cardiovascular risk by consuming that much caffeine, you know, more than a glass or two a day. Um, so there's, you know, you can get down 23 me, you can get through some other genetic companies, but there's a gene called CYP1A2. And it does other things other than caffeine, but it will tell you if you're a fast or slow metabolizer of caffeine. If you're fast, you're generally going to be able to tolerate it without really affecting your sleep. I pretty much, this isn't perfect, but you sort of will know if you're a fast metabolizer because, you know, when I was in college, you know, doing all nighter studying, you know, you're pounding the Mountain Dew or whatever. And it really never made me like, you know, not be able to fall asleep. Um, and so I don't currently drink caffeine past like 9, 10 a.m. most days. Um, so it wouldn't bother me if I tried it in the evening, but, um, but you really want to know if you're a fast or slow metabolizer that determines if caffeine's good or bad for you. Yeah. And I, it's, I'm just, it's funny. You mentioned Mountain Dew. Isn't it crazy what you used to drink back in the day? Yeah, I, mean, I used to have a soda machine in my house at one point. I mean, I was, a, I was an oh. addict. 
So. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, what about, let's talk a little bit about supplementation. Um, and are there certain supplements that you like for yourself or that you recommend? So it's kind of a broad topic and yeah. it's more based off of the individual who's sitting in front of me, but it's in the name supplement. You know, are you supplementing what is already going on in an optimal lifestyle? You know, so if somebody's already eating clean, they're already exercising appropriately, you know, they've managed their stress, they're sleeping their seven and a half, eight hours a night, and then they still have deficiencies, then that's when you start talking about supplementing things. But I always do it based off of blood work and other testing, you know. Again, back to the kind of three buckets, you know, from a cardiovascular standpoint, you know, do you have endothelial function that's optimized? That's mainly about nitric oxide. And there's different companies that make supplements that can help augment nitric oxide if you have low levels. Then inflammation, there's different things, you know, omega-3, curcumin, you know, those are some of the bigger ones I use to lower inflammation. And then lipoproteins, sort of depends on what's going on with your arteries. If you have a lot of plaque in your arteries, you already had a heart attack, already had a stroke, you got a stent, then you got probably, you know, consider using pharmacological agents to really kind of put the fire out in the arteries of that case. So it's always individualized to the, to the person who's sitting in front of me, but you know, for the people who are going to supplement, you know, quality does matter. You know, if you go down to your local drugstore and just buy it with off the shelf, you really sometimes don't know what you're getting. You don't know how well it's going to be absorbed. You don't know what other things might be in it. You know, if you don't want to have, you know, drug, drug or drug supplement interactions. So you have to know, you know, from a high quality source, why you're taking something and, you know, for how long is this to, you know, fill you back up to baseline or is this something you're going to be taking for the rest of your life? Yeah. And I know you talk about, you know, boosting nitric oxide. You mentioned, uh, dark leafy greens. You know, did you also mentioned, um, what was it? Um, beet. Oh yeah. Beet. Yeah. Beet, like beet juice or beets in general. Uh, the juice is a little bit more complicated because there's probably a lot of sugar in some of the, you know, over-the-counter preparations. And so if you have issues with insulin resistance, you're probably going to want to avoid those type of uh, processes. But um, but it's a little bit complicated with some of the, the oral nitrates because it really comes down to, do you have healthy oral bacteria? You know, one thing you want to avoid is using the really astringent mouthwashes. The mouthwashes basically nuke and kill all the good bacteria in your saliva that break down those nitrates. And then a lot of people also get stuck on the proton pump inhibitors, you know, the medicines, you know, the purple pills and stuff like that, that block acid in your stomach. Well, you need acid in your stomach to break down proteins. You need acid in your stomach to be able to make enzymes to make these reactions happen. So if you're pounding, you know, the acid levels down, you're probably going to have low nitric oxide levels. Okay. That makes sense. And um, yeah, got it. Is there anything else that we missed? <laughs> um yeah. I'd say what, you know, what testing you should consider. I mean, I can yeah. kind of bang them out real quick, but you know, yeah. like I said earlier, if you go to a conventional cardiologist with symptoms, you know, they're going to do a 12 lead EKG and they're probably going to do a stress test on you. And if stress is abnormal, you're going to the cath lab, but that's kind of late to the game. And for people who want to be more proactive and not reactive, you have to look at the endothelial function. There's different tests that can look at that non-invasively. You know, one test is called the max pulse. You know, basically looks at, are your arteries elastic, like an accordion, or are they the stiff, like a big lead pipe. We have a device in the office called the Endopet. It basically simulates exercise and tells you how much can your arteries dilate when you stress it with exercise. So ideally your arteries should triple or quadruple in size with exercise. Mm. If you're under like 1.68, so your arteries only dilate 68%, you have endothelial dysfunction and you're set up to develop plaque in your arteries if you don't fix that. Then the next thing is looking at inflammation. There's blood markers that can do it, of course, but we can look for inflammation in the artery on the side of your neck. There's a artery there called the carotid artery. 
You can have a task called the carotid enthymal medial thickness test, the CIMT for short, and that will measure the flow. So it'll assess if there's any blockages in your arteries, but also measure the thickness of the entomo. The entomo layer should be normally pretty thin. You know, the thicker it is, the more inflammation is in the artery, the more likely ApoB particles, the things that are carrying cholesterol through your blood vessels, they're taking detours and now they're getting stuck in the artery causing this inflammatory response. And then there's a test called the CT coronary calcium scan. Usually it's about $100 or so. I tell people it's kind of like a mammogram for the heart. You know, cancer screening generally has it right. You know, you're looking for things very early. You know, a calcium score is kind of looking at, you know, plaque in your arteries before you have your first symptom. Calcium is supposed to be in your bones. It's not supposed to be in your artery walls. So you have calcium in your artery walls. You've had some break-ins and you have an issue. Then you need to work with somebody who's kind of you know, knowledgeable about this and they can do the advanced blood work and figure out, okay, what's causing the plaque in you and then teach you how to kind of mitigate that risk. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I love what you're doing because I, I wish there were more, more uh, health professionals that sort of get on the preventative side of things. Was that something that you thought to yourself, like, as you were in, in the hospitals, you're like, like almost like a missing link out there for, you know, a missing piece of the puzzle for people and their health is, you know, like you said, almost waiting till it's too late and not getting in being preventative. And so like, you know, someone like yourself who has the experience of the, of, of being in the hospital, but now bringing that experience out to preventative health. Yeah. I mean, it actually started when I was finishing up my cardiovascular training, you know, cardiovascular training is three years after doing three years of internal medicine, after doing four years of, you know, uh, medical school. So it's 10 years of training to be sitting where I'm at right now. Uh, plus all the 20 years of experience being a physician. Uh, so the, um, the third year of fellowship, I was actually thinking I was going to go be an interventional cardiologist, which means I would be in the hospital you know, a lot more of the time, especially in the middle of the night, fixing people with acute heart attacks. And while it's very rewarding to save people at the end, I kind of call it like Humpty Dumpty medicine. Like you're just picking people up, you know, and trying to get them back together. I was like, yeah. why don't we just prevent them from falling off the wall in the first place? And back to the four-legged stool, you know, I got a little bit of nutrition training in my, you know, <laughs> medical school and a little bit in my uh, cardiovascular training, but not a lot. And so I basically kind of stumbled upon the, the paleo world and realized that like, oh, if you change up, you know, certain things and have people be gluten-free, then maybe their migraines and the arthralgias improve. And then one thing led to another. And, you know, you just start kind of just getting more curious. And I think that's really where my benefit was, was like, I just got curious about like, if we really looked earlier, we could prevent all this. And while it's great that we can stop it when it happens, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, it's kind of like a never ending process, you know? So I was like, um, I'm gonna have to step out of the hospital, be able to focus on this more. And that's what I've been doing for the past three or four years. Yeah, that's great. And I wanted to touch on another topic that just came to me regarding nutrition, like the myths around saturated fat and how that could be an issue for people. And then also sodium, um, maybe touch on both of those and, and talk about, cause I would say, imagine most people are dehydrated and lack and have not enough sodium. And most people think that, you know, having a, having an egg yolk is bad or something like this because of the saturated fat, but maybe explain that a little bit. Sure. The, so I'll take the sodium one first. And yeah. you know, there are people who are sodium sensitive. You know, it's going to raise their blood pressure. They're going to have more edema or swelling in their extremities. Um, so if you have, you know, bad kidneys, you have a, you know, a bad pump heart, you know, you got systolic or diastolic heart failure, then you may need to be a little bit more restrictive in your sodium intake, but maybe not as tight as some of the guidelines say. Um, but sodium will actually damage the endothelial glycocalyx. 
So if you damage the glycocalyx, you start down that pathway of lower nitric oxide, arteries get stiffer, plaque starts forming. So you do have to be a little bit careful. You, know, you can't ad lib salt all day long with no you know side effects. So you just have to you know test, don't guess, or look at your arteries. If your arteries are pretty healthy with it, you know whatever sodium intake you're doing is okay. But one trick is when you look at your blood work, you know when you see a, on a chemistry panel your sodium level, that's not how much dietary sodium you're getting. That's just what's you know, the electrolyte is in your blood. And if your sodium levels are high on your blood test, it basically means you are dehydrated. If your sodium levels are low on your blood test, it's not that you're not low on sodium. It's that you're you know basically overhydrated or fluid overloaded, and it's diluting the sodium. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the sodium side of things. And then to your other question, saturated fat, yeah, it's a great question. And it is a little bit complicated, but you know, saturated fat, for most people, it's not a major issue. Now, you can sort of know if you have a problem by looking at some blood work, and you can look at APOE genotype. Your APOE genotype, you get one copy from your mom, one from your dad. The three and the three is the normal genotype. Those people tend not to have as much issue with saturated fat. People who have an APOE4 gene, they tend to have a little bit more issues with the saturated fat. And in my office, I also do a lot of advanced lipid testing. You know, Boston Heart Lab is one company I utilize. They have a, a panel called the, the fatty acid balance panel. It will actually give you how well that person's absorbing the saturated fat that they're currently getting in their diet. So I work with a lot of people who are on keto diets or carnivore diets. They come to me with lipids that are sky high. And if they see the traditional cardiologist or the primary care doctor, you know, the first answer is, here's your statin. You know, your lipids are horrible. Where I do a little bit more deep dive and say like, well, genetically, you're not really you know, predisposed to tolerating this type of diet. So maybe you cut back on the saturated fat. And if you want to stay on this higher fat diet, you're probably going to have to do more monounsaturated fat, you know, olive oil, macadamia nuts, uh, you know, something like that, or polyunsaturated fat, ideally through cold water seafood. So just cut the saturated fat and, you know, uh, isocalorically change it to a different fat type. And then often the, the lipoproteins will start to trend in the right direction in that instance then. So it sounds like you use a lot uh, with genetic testing. At least, you know, puts you in kind of the right mindset. Like, is this likely to, you know, be tolerated long-term? You know, it's back to the kind of the conversation we had before. Like, there's no perfect diet for everybody. So, you know, the keto diet, you know, if you have a really bad seizure disorder and your neurologist says you got to be keto for life, then that's reasonable because the benefits outweigh any risk. But if you're just doing keto because it's cool, you sometimes need to know what was your baseline look like before you did that diet? Because I've seen a lot of people mess themselves up with these type of diets. You know, it's not evolutionary beneficial to be in ketosis all the time. You evolutionary wouldn't have decided to do that. You know, where we're at, you know, we got four seasons. So it's the winter time. There's not a lot of food growing where I'm at right now. So you would tend to have been more ketotic in the wintertime. You would have eaten protein and fats because carbohydrates don't grow in low light cycles. And then in the spring and summer, when the berries and the rest of the food starts coming in, you would eat more carbohydrates and you would not have been in ketosis. So that's how you kind of think about it. Is not only do you eat time restriction during the day, but you would eat more seasonally. It was only past couple you know decades that you got blueberries from Chile, you know, in January in Chicago, like you yeah. just didn't have access to that stuff. Yeah, very true. And yeah, I mean, I've done the genetic testing and then there you can you can sort of plug it in. I, I think I use 23andMe and then I, uh, I think Rhonda Patrick has a, on her site where you can plug in and get sort of an interpretation of that. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I believe I was sort of a slow metabolizer of saturated fats. So that is something I've actually cut back a little bit on. 
um, as well. And then I've also done like some hair mineral testing as well, as far as for heavy metals and, um, you know, to look at, you know, minerals in general and see if there's any, you know, dehydration or if you're low in magnesium and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had, a, I had an individual on my podcast, um, Lane, oh God, oh, Barton Scott and uh, upgraded formulas. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they do hair mineral testing. And, uh, uh, I, I found it fairly beneficial to learn that stuff. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, uh, getting to the end, let's, we've touched on a lot of great things. Um, what would you say, uh, this is a question I asked most, my, all, mostly all my guests, if you were going to give one tip, uh, to an individual who was looking to maybe get their body back to what it once was in their, let's just say in their fifties and sixties, what one tip would you give that individual? It's actually pretty easy and it's free. Never miss a sunrise for the rest of your days. It all starts with circadian biology. If you see that morning sun, naked eyes to the skies, you know, that's what my friend uh, Carrie Bennett on Instagram talks about, naked eyes to the skies. That light entering your eyes in the morning time tells your brain what time of day it is. That sets off the cascade of how to make optimal hormones, optimal neurotransmitters. It sets you up for getting proper sleep at night. It helps, you know, with leptin sensitivity. So leptin is the master hormone that determines your body composition. So if you want to have optimal body composition, you need more morning sun. Love that. I like that also because I do that every morning. (laughs) (laughs) And even if the sun's not out, it's still beneficial. Correct. I mean, the the sun changes in its um, intensity and color throughout the day. So in the morning, there's no UV light. So you're not going to get a burn when you go outside in the morning. That's mostly to help set your circadian rhythm. After, depending on your environment, 30 minutes to 60 minutes, UVA comes out. That wavelength of light when it hits your skin, nitric oxide gets released. That helps keep your blood pressure normal. And then depending where you're at, you know, we're out of vitamin D winter in St. Louis right now. There's about a two-month period in St. Louis. It doesn't matter how much you know skin you expose outside. The wavelengths of light from UVB don't make it through the atmosphere. So you're not making vitamin D on your skin mm-hmm. those months out of the year. But otherwise, even on a gray cloudy day, you're still getting light information in your brain that tells your body what time of day it is. Yeah. Well, this was great. Um, where's the best place for people to find you, Dr. Twyman? Well, thank you for the opportunity to, to chat with your audience. It's always a pleasure talking with somebody who's kind of like a biohacker, health optimizer. Um, <laughs> but if people are interested in, you know, the things that I uh, talk about, you know, every Monday night on Instagram, 6 p.m., I do a IG Live. You know, usually the first of the month it's an Ask Me Anything, and it really is Ask Me Anything about cardiovascular health longevity, biohacking, and I'll answer your questions. And then the other, you know, Mondays typically is a cardiovascular topic. Tonight I'm actually talking about how to optimize your own labs, but sometimes it's a, a red light topic or you know, why do you wear these particular types of blue blocking glasses? So if people are interested in that, I'm on Instagram. The name is just Dr. Twyman, D-R-T-W-Y-M-A-N. And also my website, drtwyman.com. That's great that you do a, so every Monday night you do like a Q&A? For the most part, yep. Yeah. The power of social media. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I actually call it the matrix because, you know, I don't like this much blue light technology messing up people's sleep cycles, but I use the matrix to unplug people to help them understand that there's a different way to look at your cardiovascular health. How do you optimize your mitochondria? So get on there, help them unplug, go see their sunrises. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on and dropping all this knowledge on us. And I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. 
check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.